holiday greetings from Budweiser. As a youngster, life was a baseball game. There was nothing more exciting than a good old game of ball. I played a lot of ball games growing up in Baltimore, every day from spring to fall. I never would have had that chance to prepare for a career every boy dreams of <clears throat> without the love and hard work of two people, my mom and dad. If this can could talk, it would tell you about the men who built the first Liberty ship at Sparrows Point. About the kids who rode the number eight streetcar every Saturday to the Waverly. About the day Harry Truman came to dedicate the new Friendship Airport. About the greatest game ever played. It would tell you about the grand department stores that lined Howard Street. And about the seven African Americans who on that same street staged the nation's first lunch counter sit-in. About the tall ships that sailed into the inner harbor for the bicentennial. About Wild Bill cheering us to victory in 83. And an old train warehouse that became a diamond. If this can could talk, it would tell you about the generations who have gathered in backyards and screen porches and dining rooms to celebrate the original flavor of Baltimore. Old Bay, for 75 years, it's been the can that connects us. Another ovation for Al Taylor and the Tigers' designated hitter going for that uh, 3,000 hit. And to describe the action for it, here's Paul Carey. Thank you, Ernie. Al bounced off to Palanger at short, his first time up. The pitch is swung on, there's a drive down the right field into the corner. get into the 3,000 hit category, I remember something Hank Aaron told me that in spring training, he said, he says, the only thing I, I felt that I ever really did anything in baseball is when I got 3,000 hits. He said, and then all of a sudden he felt a sense that he has really accomplished something. And I do now, you know, getting 3,000 hits and uh, only so few people in the history of baseball ever to achieve this. And certainly it makes you aware that you've done something so many people haven't done, but I don't know. I about my being great, uh, I, I've been in the, the right situation at the right time, it seems like, and things just seem to fall in place for me. And uh, There's so many players that were greater than me, so it really uh, doesn't you know, doesn't mean that much. If you can't be the best, and really being second, third, or 20th, or 30th doesn't mean that much. Two, two. 
stop the Robinson Gearing Studio Complex in straight out of God's country, Pauley's Island, South Carolina. The Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network proudly presents Backwards K Pod. And now, here's the host of the show, Jake Robinson. I never move in slow mo. Welcome to my dojo. Those other pots are so so. I'm chill like bro, yo. Focus like a GoPro. Ripping up this promo. Check out the scoreboard. Freaks, I'm throwing no notes. It's going, it's going, it's going. Yo, it's gone. Your heart just stop. Cause Jake got strong and mighty. Undefeated, I mean it. Pull up the pots, call it down, then read it. Written, produced, directed, and mixed. Dog on your lips and Ozzy Smith back lips. Pick a tip, any tip, get on to it. I got ridiculous pods without forcing it. You sit at home. Cry like a girl while I spread the gospel around the world. Yo, the pods are written behind tracks that mixed it smooth with the groove to make ears want to listen. Add a little cut and a rhythm to back it up. Another show to my name, now watch me stack them up. You think another white rap pack, but this ain't no ad jack. My hobbies are rhyme, some people try to be black, but that about time I come out, call the show. BKB and let me turn it out. Yo, name Jake the Snake, born in 71. Dates, you know what time it is, I'm packing them guns. Your experience, I've been a witness to glory. And that's why I collect ball players and their stories. You heard? So, once again, back is the incredible, the pod animal, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I'm coming out of Paulie's Island, South Kagalaki, Hat Man, Hat Podcast Machine, back in the Captain Gertrude, Shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K-Pop, where we collect ball players and their stories. What's cracking, freaks? What's juicy? It's the Grassroots Baseball Podcast Show that spans the globe as Snakey Claws likes to come through every week bearing free gifts from my brand of Mary Seabeds. It's a place where all of us like-minded nerds can get together with no judgment, recount some of the historical baseball moments, players, and characters that have not only captured our imagination, but have been woven and stitched into the fabric of our culture and history. And historically speaking, the three sports that rose in conjunction with the country, from a trader colonist to, uh, you know, this North American expansionism to world superpower. Well, the three sports that have always been there throughout our history from day one has been horse racing, boxing, and baseball. And whatever sport is your favorite now, our American sports conscience is derivative and spawned by these early sports and their contests. Now, Boxing and horse racing are all but dead entities now. Boxing has given way to other combat sports such as MMA for the uh, you know for better chance of instant gratification of a tap out or a knockout. And horse racing, which I love by the way, I've been going to Preakness many times in my life. But you know, let's face it, we all have cars now. Having the fastest horse doesn't quite mean what it used to. Well, unless you have a 2024 20, Mustang GT, you know, 5.0. And baseball has been knocked out a few times throughout the centuries, but she always rebounds, 
And I love where the current product is headed right now. The 90s brought on this Latin explosion in Major League Baseball. Not that there weren't great Latinos before the 90s, of course, but the Latin ball player took it to another level in that era. And I feel grateful to have experienced the revolution. It made my favorite sport better in every conceivable way. As someone who was born years after Jackie broke the color barrier, which opened the door for the explosion of black ball players on the MLB stage, the closest thing in my mind I've ever been able to equate that to is the way Latinos have changed the game forever during my lifetime. And I believe we're now in another evolutionary process of witnessing the Asian explosion in Major League Baseball. Not only are imports rolling in from Korea and Japan, they're getting here at a much younger age than ever before. So, while BKP is a historical celebration and remembrance of the game, and how the sport has grown alongside our still young experiment of a country, baseball continues to stretch her arms into more and more countries around the world. And to be honest, I'd love to see this game go into Africa at some point. There is still plenty of work to do. And my job is to preach the gospel of baseball to the world. To leave my voice behind for future generations. It's truly why God made me. Hello everybody, it's your boy Jake Robinson. I got your hookup. Holler if you hear me. And this... Is backwards came on at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network, where we collect ball players and their stories. This is show 111, week six of the 2023 offseason, and my God, freaks, there are only two left, two shows left counting today before the calendar resets with the new year. And before I get to the weekly news and this week's topic. I just want to thank this audience for supporting the show this year. And what started out as a passion project has progressed way beyond my projections when I started this. And I'm chomping at the bit to come running out of that dugout in 2024 to take them out for you guys. And, And if I could... I'd like to pull the curtain back a little and expose you to the inner workings behind the scenes here at BKP. The psychology of the show, if you will. I know I'm not your run-of-the-mill baseball podcaster. Like 2 Chain says, I'm different, baby. I'm different. I stay true to myself and my roots. I'm an artist. I'm a self-absorbed narcissist who craves your attention, C-Meds. I try to always keep myself grounded and never take myself too serious. I'm an artist, but look, I also know I'm at the bottom of the food chain when it comes to art. I'm not a sculptor or a painter, not a singer or an actor. I'm a podcaster who tries to capture your attention every week with a few corny jokes and stories. And believe it or not, there is an art to that. At least that's how I look at it. Yeah, every week... Every new topic, it represents a blank audio canvas propped up on the easel just waiting for me to add my own flair and style. And the funny thing about this business, this art form, I'm creating a moment that only lives in the moment. And what I mean is, 
even when a story is laid out on audio, I'll never be able to replay that moment with the audience the way I lived it in that moment. And I imagine it's like skydiving. Now, I've never had the testicular fortitude to jump out of a perfectly functional working airplane, but I assume every jump is different, and each one takes a life of their own, and that is only in the moment. When I grab the mic and gather all my research, in that moment, it's all on me. I become a writer, a story, and a storyteller. I become an actor. I live vicariously through the topic. Now I'm a ball player, a rock star. It's the fireworks in my imagination, a kick-ass show that reverberates in me when the lights go dark. And it feels like good sex, baby. My intent of every show is to do whatever I have to do to make you, the audience, believe. If only for a brief second. I try to take you to a place where you imagine yourself playing at Yankee Stadium in an October night. I want you to feel the isolation, the fear of the person holding on to their life in the Bay Bitch collapse of 1989 earthquake series. I want you inside the plane when Munson misses the runway and he's enveloped by smoke. I will do whatever I have to do to make this audience believe, make you feel the story. I want to hold you in my hand until you bust with this, like, honest, visceral, emotional orgasm. And this is my art. There is nothing in the world like it. Ever since I couldn't hit Andy Brent's 10th grade slider, all I've ever dreamed about was playing sports broadcasting. Baseball and broadcasting, my two passions in life. I grew up idolizing cats like Howard Stern, Scotty Farrell, Jim Rome, as well as some of these local broadcast giants that I had Baltimore, Bruce Cunningham, and Nasty Nestor Aparicio. I looked up to them as much as I looked up to, you know, a Cal Ripken Jr. as a young pup. There are pieces of each of them engraved in my style, but I can look in the mirror every day and know that what I'm giving you is the real me. It's authentic, albeit it's my personality dialed way up when the mic goes hot, but it's all me. As the kids like to say, I keep it 100. My strengths and my flaws and full display. I keep this show guerrilla outlaw radio style. I don't over edit so that every word and every sentence is perfect. I don't have the classic broadcaster voice. I have that weird bomber accent that sometimes rears its ugly head. I know. But I have the utmost respect for the history of the game, which is why I preserve it. And I have a passion. I feed off of this audience. You've given me the opportunity to do what I love more than anything in the world. And you've motivated me to keep pushing. And like I said, all artists, we have an inner arrogance. We're all self-loathers in some way. Searching for love and attention from others. We need it. We crave it. But being an artist is selfless as well because I'll do anything to win your approval. In 90 weeks of shows here at BKP, I've done 111 shows. I only missed one Tuesday. That's because I had a hernia operation and the show came out on Friday of that week. 
Ostensibly, I work seven days a week. It takes anywhere from 16 to 27 hours to put a show together. I've missed Super Bowls, Ravens games, family dinners, any type of nightlife I could possibly have at 50-some years old. Whatever it takes to honor the fact that you guys let me perform for you every week. And whatever it takes to grow this show. But look, don't cry for me, Argentina. I'm not looking for a pat on the back because, let's face it, a pat on the back is only two feet higher than a swift kick in the ass. But I would be remiss if I didn't applaud you, the audience. The state of BKP is two times stronger than our impressive first year as we watch 2023 Circle the Drain here. Our official second year anniversary is actually in February, but I do feel a sense of symbolism and success with the downing of 2024 upon all of us around the world. Thank you again, and I'm anxiously awaiting the return on that data from Google about the show this year. So, look, that that went a little longer than I expected. We're running a little behind, so far this week. I'm going to do a little pivot here. I'm going to brush past some news rather quickly so we can load up this BKP time travel choo and delve into our topic this week. Uh, Yamamoto has a sign, but insider say should have a decision riding by Christmas. We know that he has met with Yankees, Mets, and Phillies. And he's probably going to engage with the Dodgers, Red Sox, Giants, Jays, Cubs. Pretty much all the big market teams that guys, that can sign guys for, you know, say $700 million and defer $680 into the last year of the contract. So, uh, if you don't root for a team in those type of markets, go back to sleep because you got no chance. And speaking of gluttonous big market teams... The Dodgers traded Ryan Pepeo and Johnny DeLuca to the Rays for pitcher Tyler Glass now and outfielder Manny Margot. And of course, L.A. turns around the eat Glass now to a five-year, $136 million extension to stay in L.A. And boy, oh boy, that's a lot of cash on the AAV for a guy who has maxed out at 120 innings pitch in a season. But hey, okay, it ain't my money. I don't care. I actually think Margot has been in our overlooked piece of this trade. I always liked him. Going back to when he was coming through the Padre system, he's a versatile outfielder. And it looks like Mookie Betts will be playing more infield this year than ever before. The San Francisco Giants, who have felt it like jilted bridesmaids the last few offseasons after being passed over by George Springer, Arson Judge, and now Otani. They finally scored when they signed KBO superstar Jung-Hoo Lee, who was probably, at this point, the highest talented player to come out of Korea so far. And thankfully, Jung-Hoo Lee was a Giants fan, and he had frequently visited the city as a kid. He has a familiarity there. And I would imagine the Giants would probably love to score another starting pitcher to counter-program what their rivals are up to in SoCal. But Huli could be the much-needed lengthening in their lineup they need. And a plug between Michael Conforto and Mitch Hattiger. This Huli kid has an 
you know, he's, he looks like an exceptional, he's got exceptional athleticism, he's quick and agile, his bat-to-ball abilities in the KBO are superb, he looks humble, ready to go to work, I'm rooting for that kid. Let's see. NL champion Diamondbacks have already dealt for Eugenio Suarez from the M's, who, sidebar, folks, the Mariners are quietly cutting payroll. Don't be surprised if they trade a pitcher like a Bryce Miller to get a bat. But anyway, back to the Snakes. They get Gino from Seattle, and they just re-signed Lourdes Goriel to a three-year deal. That's good news for them. And before we load up the old diesel freaks, the Kansas City Royals. Man, I love what they are doing. While the Twins are watching their strength, which is starting pitcher. They're watching them leave and Kenta Maeda and Sonny Gray. And with the White Sox and Indians being relatively quiet so far, the Tigers and Royals, the Royals in particular, have been aggressive in a division that is wide open and winnable with the right moves. KC has bolstered their rotation by signing uh, Seth Lugo, Michael Waka to now join 26-year-old Brady Singer and 25-year-old South Paul Cole Reagans, who, in all honesty, may have been the second best pitcher behind uh, Garrett Cole in the American League during the second half of 2023. Cole, Cole Reagans. The Royals added some bullpen help by inking Chris Stratton, and they also got a bat Hunter Renfro. One more bat to go with Bobby Baseball. Like, a veteran. Uh, like a fam, or maybe a Jorge Soler homecoming. The Royals are very close in that division. Let's be honest. 87 wins may be enough to win that division. So, just a brief synopsis of some of the moves made here week six of the offseason, just to keep you abreast of all the goings-ons. And I'll be doing that a little bit every week until opening day pitch of the 2024 Major League Baseball season. Here at Backwards K Pod and the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. So, look, thank you for bearing with me. But it's the end of your show, and I feel like there have been some things I've been wanting to say for a while about how humbled I am to have each and every one of you in my family this year. And with that being said, I'm running late. These time portals can be unstable if you hit them at wrong speeds and time. The ball game has already started. The umpire has already called play ball. I need to get you nerds to clear the platform here at Terrapin Station. Kiss and hug your loved ones goodbye. Let's get these remaining stragglers on our BKP. Time travel, Chucho, as I call all aboard. And this week, folks... I'm going to set our time and destination for Baltimore, Maryland, December 19th, 1934, where we will bear witness to the birth and rise of the hometown teenage rock star baseball legend, who would then go straight to the majors out of high school and become one of the greatest all-around right fielders to ever play the game. So, hurry, hurry, step right up. Watch your step. Make yourself comfortable while I bend space and time to get us back to Baltimore 1934. As this week, it is my honor to present the story 
about Al Kaline, his life and career and his amazing journey that would ultimately ultimately lead to his induction in the Cooperstown Pantheon of Immortals. So, kick off your shoes, open your kimonos, buckle up your chin strap buttercup. Where we're going, we don't need roads. But, as we traverse baseball time and space to get to the beginning of the Al Kaline bio, I feel it apropos to talk a little bit about the end of his playing career. To be precise, the exact date was September 24, 1974, almost 40 years after he was born. And by now, Mr. Tiger's a grizzled vet, a legend of the bygone era that was being evaporated by the new breed of baseball stars, taking over the non-stop, constantly evolving sport. And his quest... For 3,000 hits to cap off his illustrious career has brought the icon full circle back to where it all began. Where we're headed now, Baltimore to face the Orioles in his hometown one last time. And the Tigers won Charm City for two games to wrap up a three-city road trip. K-Line appeared in each of the trip's first six games and collected seven hits, bringing his career total to 2,999. Orioles Southpaw Dave McNally took the mound for the Birds that day. The Orioles and Tigers, they were in the 1974 opening day game as well on April 6th that year. And K-Line torched McCally, McNally for three hits to kick off his swan song campaign. And it left an impression in the back of McNally's mind because at some point during the season, McNally, Palmer, Cuellar, they began talking about K-Line and how he, how he will be coming to Baltimore towards the end of the year and the possibility of him being close to that Clemente benchmark. And McNally begins thinking about that opening day performance to kick off the season. And he turns to Cakes and Crazy Horse and he says, I'm telling you right now, he's going to get that hit against me. And Palmer and Cuellar, they begin goofing on him. And he says, no, 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 for real, sick. He's gotten like 500 hits off of me already, so one more ain't going to make a difference. And look, McNally was exaggerated, of course, but it may have been a case of those three opening day hits that had bruised his baseball psyche and confidence. I mean, if only Earl Weaver had been around to hear this conversation, then he would have probably pulled a stack of Stratomatic cards out of his ass or his literally thousands of index cards of stacks on every single player that ever faced the Orioles pitchers since he took over the manager's helm for the club in 1968. Earl was a man of his time. and He played the metrics game of his era. Thus, his pension for the three-run homer and interchangeable platoons. And I imagine... Earl would have probably said something like, No, Dave. In fact, K-Line has a 310, 398, 509 career slash against left-handers, but against you, it's a respectable slash line for both of you. At 265, 333, 451. 
In fact, Dave, Whitey Ford and Jim Cott are the only left-handed pitchers to face him more times in their career than you. And I just feel like that's something Earl would say as, you know, if he had heard that conversation between his talented pitchers that day. But with Al's parents in attendance at Memorial Stadium, along with the uh, scores of his close friends, and even among the Orioles faithful, everyone in there wanted to see the hometown kid pull up with Clemente at 3,000. I mean, if he's going to do it anywhere other than his adopted hometown of Detroit, it should be in Baltimore. Many of the t- Tigers faithful back home in Michigan were tuned in to Ernie Hall- Harwell and Paul Carey's radio broadcast of the game. I played that clip at the top of the show. And Kalon's first at bat in the first inning, the legend was met by a crowd of 11,492 rising to their feet and cheering for the Baltimore kid wearing Tigers gray. McNally induces Mr. Tiger to a ground out to shortstop Mark Belanger that first inning. And the top of the fourth, from the clip you just heard at the beginning of this week's show, he ropes a double in the right field for his milestone baseball hit. And as he stood up second base, looking at all the excited baseball fans honoring him, the stoic all-about K-line, all-about-business K-line, he spots his parents, they stop the game, he goes and hugs them, and also some of his closest friends for life. And a whole bunch of other people he would never know joined in on the celebration, blessing him with reverence and respect. Two baseball cities at the same time, Loving him like he was their own. And in a weird way, he was. Kalon became just the 12th player to, to meet the 3,000 hit threshold. And he was the first American leaguer to do it since Eddie Collins of the Dead Ball White Sox back in 1925. That's a span of 49 years, freaks. Now, if you're doing the math... You might want to check that. I got a Baltimore education. But my math says 49 years. Kalon was first player to reach 3,000 since Clemente in 1972. He was the second player to achieve the milestone uh, after Tyrus Raymond Cobb. Second Tiger player to achieve that milestone. And he was the first batter to get 3,000 hits as a designated hitter. Now, many players, including George Brett, Dave Winfield, Eddie Murray, Paul Molitor, Alex Rodriguez, have since followed suit in that DH role. The hit was his 498th and last double of his career. The 66th most two-baggers in the history of the game, tied with Bill Buckner, Torrey Hunter, Sammy Rice. The Tigers were down 2-1 in the sixth when... K-Line steps to the plate again with runners on the corner, nobody out. He laces a single back to the box to drive in Ron LaFleur with the tying run. Moving his hit number 3,001 and ahead of the great one into 11th place. Before the 1974 campaign was complete, K-Line would leapfrog over 11 hitters with plaques hanging in the hall. The Tigers would fall to the Orioles. And like the consummate pro that K-Line always was, even as a teenager, belying his age and making Major League Paul look easy, K-Line apologizes to the Tigers fans for the loss, saying a win would have capped it off perfectly. 
The next night, in his very last game in his hometown, he chatted it up with new President Gerald R. Ford, who was a huge Tigers fan from the Grand Rapids, Michigan area, as we covered that in our U.S. Presidents and Baseball show. That's in the archives. K-Line collected hit number 3,002 off of Orioles hurler Ross Grimsley. The Tigers had a 4-1 lead, but the Orioles would rally to walk it off in the ninth. And here we are, folks, tearing through that last interdimensional wormhole and straight into Baltimore, December 19th, in the year of our Lord, 1934, on a little patch of city us locals like to call Westport, where a child has been born, and his star will shine among the brightest in the baseball universe in about 18 years from now. William Allen Kaline. I'm sorry, William Albert Kaline is born December 19, 1934. 89 years ago to the day that this show drops to Nicholas and Naomi Kaline. His father was a brewmaker by trade, but in his younger days, He was a semi-pro baseball player. And from the time he can recall, Al's father began working with him on pitching mechanics and arm development. Nicholas would squat and catch his son for hours after work while his son threw an array of different pitches. And by the time K-Line is nine, he has a legitimate curveball, changeup, and a four-seam fastball. And the hard work and time that his father has invested in him, it's starting to pay off. While pitching for Westport Grammar School, he won 10 straight games of the strength of his powerful arm, which, down the road, his legendary arm strength and accuracy at such a young age would carry over into his professional career, making him one of the most complete and well-rounded baseball players of his era. As a young kid, barely 11 years old, maybe, he hurls a baseball 173 and a half feet, which is 52.88 meters. And this was at a neighborhood picnic. The disbelieving judges, they implored him to do it again. This time, he throws the ball 175 feet, or 53.34 meters, which is a remarkable feat. For any 11-year-old kid, let alone one who was diagnosed with osteomyelitis, which is a chronic bone disease that actually forced the removal of diseased bone in his left foot as a child. Ostensibly, K-Line had a longer right leg than his left. And to combat this physical impairment, the young Alan Albert taught himself how to adjust and run on the other side of his foot. And this would mark the beginning of him showing this ability and determination to overcome injuries, a trademark of his brand throughout his career. His freshman year at Southern High School in the charm, he tries out for the football and basketball teams. He would quit football midway through the season when he suffers a broken cheekbone. On the hardwoods, however, he led the basketball team in scoring as a freshman. And when spring came 
Al tried out for the school baseball team. And Coach Bill Anderson immediately notices Cal's pitching prowess, but he really had no spot for him on the staff. So he figures, what the hell? I'll throw him out in center field on the JV team this year and promote him to the varsity squad next year, his sophomore year. But that strategy was immediately scrapped as Coach Anderson promoted him to varsity after watching his defensive prowess and offensive tools during a practice game. And from day one, he was a freak. An absolute man among boys. Within weeks, scouts from every major league team were following the young phenoms every move. They watched as Al blows up Baltimore prep pitchers for a 3.33 average as a freshman and then 4.18 as a sophomore. And he's improving his defense over the course of those two seasons. After his sophomore, uh, sophomore year at Southern, he is selected to play in the 1951 high school all-star game at the Polo Grounds in New York City. Sponsored by Hearst Newspapers. The game only enhances his profile as he hits two singles and drops down to lead his team to victory and win MVP honors. The next day, K-Line traveled to Yankee Stadium to watch his first ever Major League Baseball game as the Yankees took on the St. Louis Browns. And K-Line wasn't throw amazing coaches, scouts, and his growing legion of fans. He had 469 as a junior, and he continues to progress, hitting 488 as a senior. He's an absolute high school stud. He's Bryce Harper before Bryce Harper. His combination of stellar defense and bat-to-ball skill set has MLB GMs all lathered up. And the Dodgers, Cards, Phillies, the Tigers, they're all in. But Tiger Scout and Catalinas, he's followed K-Line throughout his high school career. And he was determined to make Al the next great Tiger. When Ed first sees K-Line putting in work, he thought to himself, uh, you know, this is the guy that all baseball scouts create in their mind and then pray that someone comes along fitting your pattern that you just laid out in your head. And he fell in love with K-Line's need to compete. He watched as Al effortlessly played in seemingly every single recreation baseball league that Baltimore had to offer. He watches K-Line torch the American Legion with a 609 average And the Tigers had, the previous season, they, it ended in last place for the first time in the franchise's history. And Catalina's tried desperately to persuade Tigers president John McHale to sign K-Line, but McHale was leaning towards pitcher Tom Qualters. But after a filthy sign, Qualters... That was the opening Catalinas was looking for. He writes McHale and asks him to fly to Baltimore to watch K-Line play in person. McHale agrees, and he is astounded by the ball player that's waiting for him there. 
after he picks up his jaw off the floor and praises the Lord he didn't take Tom frickin' Quarters, he immediately flies back to Detroit and begs Spice Briggs to write out a bonus check payable to the 17-year-old rock star that he just saw in Baltimore. Briggs agreed. And now Catalinas was given the task of signing this freak. And, you know, players could not be contacted by MLB clubs until after high school graduation. So, literally the morning after graduation, Catalinas is knocking on the door of the K-Line residence with a contract at the ready in his pocket. As he walks into the domicile, he is greeted by Al's parents, but they quickly and quietly let their son, uh, they let them alone with the baseball scout. And Catalinas offers his vision of how he sees Al Kaline coming in and maybe eventually be, being the face of the new era Tigers. He offers the youngster $20,000 in salary, which is around $230,000 in the 2023 economy, and a $10,000 signing bonus, which is around $115K today. And after huddling up with his parents, Al accepts the deal, saying later that he used the bonus money to pay off his parents' mortgage and help his mother who needed eye surgery. After signing the deal, K-Line hands the contract, the paper, to his father, who has to sign it because Al's still a minor. And before Nicholas signs the deal, he reminds Catalinas that his son has made a promise to play in an amateur day game in a few days. Can he still play? And that's when Catalinas knew he had the right guy. Yes, letting your star-studded prospect play in a meaningless neighborhood tournament is a slippery slope. If he gets hurt, there's going to be a lot of splaining to do. But Ed saw through that. He saw the man that K-Line could and would eventually grow into. A man of honor, a man of loyalty. And he loved that Al would never break a promise, not even for the Tigers. Sure, Al. Go play. Stay safe. Have fun. And with that, Nicholas put pen to paper, and it was official. Al K-Line was a Tiger. And since his bonus was more than six grand... This assured Al that he would be in the ring, uh, that he would be on the big club for at least two years. On June 25th, 1953, Catalinas drives the 18-year-old to his first game, which is to be played in the baseball cathedral once known as Shine Park in Philadelphia, where the Tigers are taking on the athletics. And much like Coach Anderson... And his plans to bring the young phenom along and promote him a year later. The Tigers' strategy was to play him sparingly the first two years that the big club was obligated to uphold. And then farm him out to some minor league teams for a couple of years of seasoning. But just like in high school, K-Line has other thoughts about how this is going to go down. And he seizes his opportunity and raises some eyebrows. He quickly sees action that very first game, and instead of his iconic number six, the team throws the number 25 on him and pencils him to play center field in the bottom of the six. No ball was hit remotely near him during that game, but 
as he ran into the dugout at the end of the eighth, it dawned on him that he was due to lead off the ninth inning. So the 18-year-old kid who graduated high school just a few weeks ago, he steps into the right-hand box to face ace pitcher Harry Bird for his first major league at bat. K-Line swings at a belt-high fastball that gets good barrel, but eventually falls harmlessly into the center fielder's glove. Al would get his first hit on July 8, 1953, a single off a of White Sox hurler, Luis Aloma, and he scored his first run on July 21st while pinch running for Walt Trompo and scoring off a Don Lund double against the Washington Senators. The very first run he scored was the perfect blend of speed and aggression, and the boys nicknamed him the Baltimore Greyhound. Later that year, Tiger skipper Fred Hutchinson, he introduces his young freak to Ted Williams that he would have a close-knit relationship with for the rest of his life as the hitting advice and off-season tips that the splinter gave him and had a profound impact on the rest of his career. And after 10 minutes of working out for Teddy Ballgame, the greatest hitter who ever lived began comparing the young K-Line to his former rival, Joe DiMaggio. The effects of the newfound advice Ted gave Al was on full display on September 16th in a game versus the Red Sox. His breakout moment... He starts his first game at center field. He rakes out three singles with an RBI in the 8-3 victory. And he continues to progress. And his first home run came in the ninth inning pitch in opportunity in Cleveland's Municipal Stadium. And although he had only played in 30 games, manager Hutchinson saw enough out of the teenager to impress him. And after that first season, Kalon returns home to Baltimore. He's working at a sporting goods store during the off-season. Working there has afforded him to make money, but also practice the Ted Williams off-season drills of squeezing baseballs and swinging the bat in the basement while he's on breaks. And he's also intent on making some money so that he and high school sweetheart Madge Louise Hamilton could marry from day one, he was very attracted to her physically, but mostly because he had the ability to talk baseball. And just before leaving the spring training, he proposes and she accepts. And they would marry at the conclusion of the 1954 season. That winter, while playing with a ball in Cuba, everyday outfielder Steve Salchok broke his wrist, allowing Kaline to get valuable experience in right field, a position he had never played on any level. After the injury, the Tiger brass, they powwow it out. And they decide they're going to move K-Line to right field when Salchek's wrist heals. Oh, I'm sorry. They're going to move, they'll move K-Line to center. And when Salchek's wrist heals, they'll insert him back to right field and put K-Line on the pot. But Salchek's wrist, it never did heal. And K-Line... As usual, made the most out of his opportunities to ensure Detroit that he was the right fielder of their future. He impressed everyone with his defensive play, 
as he continued to tap into his offensive capabilities. He was hitting around 250 or so at the All-Star break, but he goes white hot in the second half of the season to boost his average up to 283 by the end of August. About a month later, he suffers his first serious injury in his baseball career when he runs into some box seats at Briggs Fields that poked out the foul territory. K-Line ran into the wall, surrounding the seats, and was knocked out cold with a badly twisted knee. And Tigers president Spikes Briggs ordered the immediate uh, the seats to be immediately re- removed to pre- prevent further injuries to his budding right fielder. And that patch of right field real estate began to be known as K-Line's Corner. He finished up his first full season batting 276, but he was disappointed and his own lack of power production that saw him only hit 25 extra base hits in the season with four of those hits being home runs and only 43 RBI. So he goes into the offseason knowing he has work to do. And whatever he did, whatever it was that he did that offseason, they should bottle that shit, market it, and sell it. As he didn't disappoint the Tigers faithful or new manager Bucky Harris. On April 17th, he hits three shots, including two in the six. By the end of April, K-Line has gone thermal with a 14-game hitting streak and an AL leading 453 BA. He gets voted by the fans as a starting right field in the Midsummer Classic for the first time in his career. And after the break, K-Line continues to pour it on. The 20-year-old leads the American League in batting average, runs, RBIs, hits, and home runs. 20 years old, the hot hitting continues until the beginning of September when K-Line returns to the human stratosphere with a slump. And to break himself, he motivates himself to shoot for 200 hits. And he would break free of a slump and collect exactly 200 hits. He would win the AL batting title two years removed from high school at the age of 20 with a 340 average. K-Line was just a day younger than Cobb when he won his batting title in 1907 and it made Al the youngest player to achieve that feat, a record that still endures today. Before the 1956 season, K-Line balked up a little bit. He hawked it up, looking to drive the ball more in his third season, but he starts out slow, and Bucky tells him he's pressing. He's being too impatient. He's reaching for pitches outside of the zone. And despite a slow start, he is voted to a second straight All-Star game, and he seeks out his hitting guru, Sensei Teddy Ball game, who only reaffirmed what his manager, Bucky Harris, had told him. After he sits down with a splinter, he goes off, raising his average from 276 to finish at 314. During the offseason, the estate of Spike Briggs' father sold the Tigers to an 11-man syndicate headed by radio station owners Fred Knorr and John Fetzer. Briggs would stay on in the general manager capacity, but the relationship between Briggs and Kalon had changed that offseason. Kalon wanted a raise. Briggs agreed that he should get one, just not as high as Al was hoping for. And Briggs sent Kalon a contract in the mail, which it just blows me away to hear that contract negotiations were handled that way back in the day. You know, that's just management 
arrogance in the corporate world when they know you they have you by the balls. That all changes when the players earn the free agency freedom by breaking that fucking reserve clause. Anyway, I digress. Where was I? Okay, so Briggs sends an offer to K-Line who responds back with a return of the contract unsigned with no note. He's insulted. How dare he not accept my generous salary with no written explanation as to why. He puts their business in the streets and he declares K-Line must be paid like Mickey Mantle. K-Line eventually got his number, but the price he paid to get his crumbs was large. The narrative became one of Al Kaline becoming the new age ego-driven ball player in search of the big payday. Many of the reporters openly presented Al this way, and the questions sometimes bordered on hostile. Kaline became so upset that he began to ignore the press, becoming even more introverted than he already was. 1957 was a great year for Mr. Tiger. As was the case in 56, K-Line had a slow start to the campaign. And again, as he had done the year before, Al goes on a tear after the All-Star break. His strong hitting and dynamite defense had led the Tigers to a fourth-place finish, and he had the first of his ten consecutive Gold Club awards for defensive excellence in right field. 1958 was much the same. Consistent bat with a 313 average and another gold glove aboard at this time. Detroit fell to fifth in the standings, though. The 1959 season was one of change and still more continuous growth in Al's game. He moves to center field after the regular center field. Harvey Keene was hit on the arm and injured. And K-Line always preferred right field. But he was a gold glove caliber defensively in Silent Field that year. When Keane returned from his injury, new manager Jimmy Dice, he kept K-Line at center, moved Harvey to right, and Al thrived at this new position. He began to show signs of toughness and leadership in the clubhouse. He was selected to start center field in the All-Star game over Mickey Mantle. He gets his 1,000th hit off of White Sox hurler Billy Pierce. The Tigers finish fourth, while K-Line and his 327 BA come in second in the league behind Keane, his teammate, who finished at 353. And Freeze, I think this is where I'm going to take a break and do a little reset here for the second segment of the show. What an amazing story. I'm totally feeling the pace and story we had this week on the legendary Mr. Tiger Al K-Line. And we got more ground to still cover than a kill by Dill out in left field at Comerica. Let me dip out, tra- track my course going forward, break my boy Gunner off with some treats, hydrate, rip a tube or two. You're listening to Backwards K Pod on the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network, where we collect ball players and their stories. BRB nerds, see you on the dark side of the moon. Down the line, he's going to try to steal home! And he's out! Ramirez says challenge to play. Jose thinks he beat him. How about that? Jose Ramirez! Turn- 
Woods. After review, the call on the field is overturned. Runner's safe. How about that? Jose Ramirez has stolen home plate. Luis Arise, second most singles in baseball last year, needs one of those right here for the first cycle in the history of the Marlins. Pitch clock down to one, and that is going to get down a base hit. The first cycle in Marlins franchise history, Luis Arise. The final piece of the puzzle, the last team in baseball without one, and Luis Arise is the guy. That is incredible. So here's Byron Buxton, first pitch, swinging out towards left field. On the run, Austin Hayes reaches out a diving catch. Austin Hayes! Spectacular play in left field! Follow by the All-Star team! Well, there is a play. If he wasn't an All-Star, he might be one now. This is about as good as it gets. And Buxton, I'll tell you what, Byron Buxton smoked this ball. Just a rocket off the bat, but Hayes an outstanding jump. And I mean, lays out... Those rally caps worked here in the ninth. Now Parker Meadows, a chance to win it. Fly ball right field. Tucker going back. Tucker looking up. Out of here! What a way to celebrate your first major league RBI with a walk-off three-run Parker Meadows walks it off into the bottom seat at home. Tigers beat the Astros. Welcome to the show, Parker Meadows, in a big way. Bucks you first, nobody out. Eighth inning. Crack down the line. Back to the corner goes Judge. It is caught by Aaron Judge. Wow. It is so much more than just the home runs. He is Superman. This is a big human being catching the ball and just blowing up the bullpen fence. Wow. The bullpen door is open. Judge slammed into the wall, but he held out to the ball. A miraculous catch by Aaron Judge. There's one away after a brilliant catch by the Yankee right fielder. The starting pitcher, the left-hander, Andrew Heaney. Swing and a miss, strike three. There's Heaney getting the chase on the fastball. Swing and a miss, he's struck him out. Fastball strikes out Dozier, and Heaney has all four of his outs with a strikeout. And that is strike three call. He strikes out the side in order this time. Giving the Royals hitters headaches. Swing and a miss! This time with the slider. Well, if anything, Andrew Heaney could say he's done something in a Rangers uniform that Nolan Ryan never accomplished. Ooh. Strike three, he got him! And Andrew Heaney has just tied an American League record for consecutive strikeouts. Line drive, left center field, Badu pulls it in. What a play by Akil Badu. A perfect route, a great jump, and a beautiful play. Great play by Akil Badu. Laying out for a pitch on the track. He got a great jump. I didn't think he had a chance at that ball. What a play. All started with the break. He got, saw that ball off the bat, took an excellent angle, and just cut that ball off in the gap, tumbling to the track. Fantastic play, Akil Badu. Strider, four regular season appearances against the Phillies prior to tonight. There's a called third strike. Beautiful slider. Throws Castellanos, and he argues with Dan Iasonia. Fewest innings pitched to 100 strikeouts by a starter since the mound moved to its current distance in 1893. Spencer Strider got to 100 tonight in 61 innings. Jacob DeGrom took 61 and two-thirds. 
Juan Soto. So accomplished at such a young age. 24 years old in his sixth major league season. Fly ball down the left field line toward the wall. And this ball is caught by Palacios. Right over the wall. He robbed a home run from Juan Soto. That's a big league play in the left field corner to steal a home run from Soto. Look at Josh Palacios. Do it, Josh. And they take two from Texas. It's in the closer's hands now. Here is Paul Seawall. This is lifted to deep center. Alec Thomas on the run. Alec on the ball. What a catch, Alec Thomas. Oh, wow. Big smile from Paul Seawall to Simeon. Hit that to the deepest part of the ballpark. But not deep enough to get away from Alec Thomas. My goodness, what an effort. And what a catch. Tip of the cap, wag of the finger. That was sensational. Oh, that ball slicing away from him the entire time. Howdy, y'all. This is Big Tex, Gage Geen, executive producer of Backwards K Pod. In Texas, we do everything big. After football and golf, there's probably nothing I love more than going fishing and enjoying a good crawfish boil. The only thing I dislike about going fishing is the lingering odor it can leave on your hands afterwards. Well, the fishing hand cleaner is an all-natural liquid soap perfect for overpowering fish and bait odors from your hands. I can't tell you how many times I've eaten steamed crabs, lobster, shrimp, crawfish, and then washed my hands with regular soap only to touch my eyes half hour later and my face begins to melt off due to the damn Cajun no Bay spices. Well, we also have a hand cleaner specifically formulated to use after eating shellfish and other seafoods. Perfect for cleaning spicy, smelly hands after a Texas-sized seafood feast. In these cases, don't settle for anything less than our crawfish hand cleaner, our crab hand cleaner, or the fishing hand cleaner. An ingenious trifecta of natural hand soaps developed and owned by a disabled Navy veteran. He and Jake have a true connection, as they were boot camp shipmates all the way back in 1989. So he is family, folks. And one thing we do here at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network is look out for family. So you can support two grassroots companies by two former shipmate Navy vets. Crushing big bowls of shellfish or fishing on the banks of your favorite river while you listen to BKP. Sounds like a great day. You know, in fact, hey, Mom, where are my poles? I'm gone fishing. There's also a buffalo wing hand cleaner in development as we speak. To check all of the incredible products of this great company, you can go to www.crawfishhandcleaner.com. Or call the home offices at 713-588-0290. That's 713-588-0290. To support the grassroots company that supports your grassroots podcast show. That's crawfishhandcleaner.com or 713-588-0290. To prepare for your summer time shellfish feast or that fishing trip you're planning, crawfishhandcleaner.com. And 
is a long drive in the deep left. That ball going back, back. It is a home run for Al Kaline. Kaline has done it again for the Tigers. He carried him on his back the last two weeks. Digging into the Al Kalon story and his amazing journey from high school to being signed by the Tigers the day after graduation to playing in a major league game less than two weeks after high school in Shot Field versus the A's and never looking back. Kalon is consistently putting up solid numbers throughout the 50s. He's winning batting titles and gold gloves and he's made an all star appearance. And he's made, well, he's made a few all-star appearances, but the Tigers are consistently finishing fourth or fifth in the American League during those years, which brings us up to 1960. And before the 1960 season, Bill DeWitt was hired as president and GM of the Tigers. He immediately shakes things up with the Stagna Club by trading for Norm Cash and then trading batting champion Harvey Keene to Cleveland for AL home run champ Rocky Colavito. By May, the team had experienced more drama and more downs than ups, with K-Line only batting 250. The prolonged slump cost K-Line a starting gig for the All-Star game, although he was chosen as a reserve, making it a sixth straight appearance. After DeWitt trades his batting champ for the home run champ, he then trades manager Dykes to Cleveland for Indian skipper Joe Gordon. It was a lost season of turmoil, and it took its toll on Al, who finished with a 278 batting average, his lowest average since 1954, and Gordon himself, the manager that they traded for, he would resign at the end of the season. So in 61, the Bengals hired Bob Sheffing to manage the team, who immediately turned to Al and challenged him to be more of a leader in the clubhouse. K-Line was never vocal, but he led by example. And he flourished all season, ending the year with a 324 batting average 
and which was second in the American League, and he was voted the American League Comeback Player of the Year. In 1962, he adjusts his approach to being a little more aggressive out of the gate, and by May 21st, K-Line is blistering league pitching. He's hitting 358. But five days later, all those good fortunes would be derailed when K-Line breaks his uh, shoulder and his collarbone, diving after a dying quail of a fly ball while patrolling right field in the game at Yankee Stadium versus the Bombers. He did make the catch, but he destroyed the collarbone and shoulder in the process. So, during the next 57 games that K-Line sat out, the Tigers fans, they watched their team lose seven and a half games in the standing, falling from three and a half back to ten and a half. He was chosen to play this eighth straight midsummer classic, but was unable to, to uh, do that because of the injury. And by the time he had yielded and returned, K-Line finished the season hitting 304 with 29 home runs, two more than his previous best all while missing 54 games. The Tigers finished 10 and a half behind the Yankees, but K-Line earned his fifth Gold Glove Award and finished sixth in the league MVP voting. In 1963, K-Line again adjusts his approach, and this time he decides to concentrate on hitting to all fields and upping that batting average and letting Cash and Calavito drive in the runs. The team started slow, but Kalon's strategical approach, he kept him hitting well enough to be chosen for yet another All-Star game. He battled knee injuries all year, which probably cost him the chance to relinquish the, uh, you know, to uh, win the batting title versus Carl Yastrzemski. He finished second in BA, hitting 312 to Yass 327. And he finished with 27 home runs and 101 RBIs. He placed second in league MVP voting, and he earned his sixth Gold Glove Award. He injures his left foot in 1964, the same one he had surgery on as a child. He tries to hide it from Charlie Dresson, the manager, but eventually the pain will force him to clean up, uh, to come clean with a skipper. And he hits 293, wins another gold club, but he's unable to play in the All-Star game, even though he was voted onto the team. His average drops to 285 the next year while he plays in a special shoe designed to protect his foot. And during the offseason, he had surgery on the foot, and that helped him turn his average around in 1966. But the season was a shit show, as Dressen, who missed time the year before after a heart attack, he fell ill again on May 16th. He was replaced by Bob Swift, Swift, who himself was diagnosed with cancer that season, and both men would die later in the year. Frank Scaff would finish the year at the manager's helm. And despite the distractions, K-Line was chosen for his 12th All-Star appearance, and he led the Tigers to a third-place finish while batting 288 with 29 dogs. The Tigers roll into the 67 season with the ambitions of a rider under new manager Mayo Smith. Smith moves out back to right field. He's voted into his 13th All-Star in a row. But a broken hand he suffered after slamming his bat into the bat rack in a game after striking out against the Tribe and robbed him of a chance to participate in that game. Unlike 1962, when the Tigers crumbled after losing K-Line, the Motown Bengals go 15-11 with their leader and they finish second behind the Red Sox. 
K-Line hit 308 with 25 big flies, 78 RBIs. Despite missing 31 games, he won his 10th and final Gold Glove Award. In 1968, the now 33-year-old K-Line kicked off the season by playing in his 2000th career game. April 18th in a 5 nothing win over the Tron. May 9th, with his 307th career home run, he passes Hank Greenberg as the Tigers' career home run leader. Six days later, he breaks his arm after being hit by a pitch by Lou Krause, and he doesn't return until July 1st. Now, during that stretch in Mr. Tigers' absence, Jim Northrop he takes over in right field, and he played pretty well. When Kaline returns, he's used mostly as a pinch hitter and some spot duty at first base. And despite the reduced role, he figures prominently in the pennant run. He scores the tying run and Denny McLean's 30th victory on September 14th. On September 17th, he pinch hits for Norm Cash and ends up scoring the winning run. That won the Tigers the pennant for the first time in Kaline's career. And after the game, K-Line sits in manager Smith's office and he tells his skipper he doesn't deserve to play in the series because of the heroics of the guys who stepped up during his absence. But the manager would hear none of that and he had other ideas. To get Al sticking to the World Series lineup, he moves center fielder Mickey Stanley to shortstop, Jim Northrup to center, and K-Line to right. The gamble pays off as the t- Tigers rebound from a three games to one deficit to win the next three straight games, including game seven over Bob Gibson, whom K-Line called the greatest pitcher he ever faced. Mr. Tiger was superb during the World Series. He batted 379 with two home runs and one of the greatest modern day World Series ever played. And we've covered that 68 World Series in depth. And a few of our shows in this catalog, most notably the Mickey Lolich and Bob Gibson bios, I have available on all platforms, wherever you listen to your shows, or swing on over to diamondsnakejake.podbean.com to hear that or any of the shows that I keep in that vault of archives there. So... After the 68 season, K-Line continues to hit and gain accolades. In 1969, he is voted onto the all-time Tigers team. August 2nd, 1970 was Al K-Line Day, upon which the city renamed Cherry Street behind Old Tiger Stadium to K-Line Drive. In 1971, the Icon was voted into a 17th All-Star Game held that year in Detroit. He went one for two, and he scored on a Harmon killer road dong in the bottom of the sixth. Man, I tell you, it, it feels like everybody in the lineup hit a home run in that All-Star game. On July 1st, 1972, K-Line in his 369th career blast, tying Ralph Kiner for 18th place on the all-time dogs list. He also led the Tigers to the playoffs, which saw them fall to the Dynastic and eventual world champion Oakland A's in the ALCS. The 1974 season was Al's last 
and his first as a full-time New Fangler designated hitter. He was named to his 15th and final All-Star game, and he wrapped out that double for his 3,000 hit on September 24th off of Dave McNally that we talked about in the story open. Mr. Tiger would fade into the sunset with a myriad of mind-blowing end-of-the-career stats that speak of his greatness. Even though he missed 594 games in his career, the vast majority of them due to injuries. And that's the equivalent of two-and-a-half season freaks. With a career 987 fielding position, he is also regarded as one of the greatest defensive right fielders to ever carry a bat bag. And he has 10 gold gloves as proof. In a 2001 Sporting News article, Ernie Harwell and Yogi Berra declared that K-Line had the best right field arm ever. In 1976, K-Line began his second career as a color commentator on Tigers TV broadcast. In 1980, his first year of eligibility, K-Line is inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. In a class that featured Mr. Tiger along with Duke Snyder, Chuck Klein, and Red Sox owner Tom Yawkey. Kaline thanked his family and then said, If there's one accomplishment I'm most particularly proud of, it is that I've always served baseball to the best of my ability. Never have I deliberately done anything to discredit the game, the Tigers, or my family. By far, being inducted into the Hall of Fame is the proudest moment of my life. He served more time, 25 years of broadcasting, than he did as a Tigers player. He also participated as a spring training instructor, mentoring a young Kirk Gibson out of master the Tiger Stadium outfield. In 2001, K-Line leaves the booth and becomes a special advisor to Tigers owner Mike Illich. In 2003, new GM Dave Dombrowski names K-Line and his former teammate Willie Horton as special assistants to the GM. Because of his broadcasting and special assignments, Mr. Tiger was associated with the team for nearly 70 years. His long and distinguished career for Detroit officially ended on April 6, 2020. When the iconic Tiger died at his home in Bloomfield Hills in Michigan due to complications from a stroke at the age of 85. He was survived by the love of his life, Luis, and their two sons, Mike and Mark. And he is one of, if not the most decorated player in the history of the Tiger franchise that includes guys like Tyrus Raymond, Hank Greenberg, Kirk Gibson, Alan Trammell, just to name a few. One of the greatest players to ever wear the old English D. He is forever remembered in this strong sports town as Mr. Tiger or simply Six. And folks, I think this is where I'm going to wrap it up. I could go on and on about this amazing ball player. But I think I'm going to call it right here. What an amazing player and story. And I hope you enjoyed hearing it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you this week. Next week, 
will be the last show of the year, and I promise, folks, I'll try to be even better for you guys next week. Before I bust out like Peter North, let's take one look at those oh-so-lovely Mr. Tiger, Al Kaline Stats. William Albert Kaline, born December 19, 1934. So, the day this pod drops, the Baseball Universe will be celebrating his 89th birthday posthumously. Happy birthday, Mr. Tiger. Died April 6, 2022. Complications from a stroke at the age of 85 at his home in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. Attended Southern High School in Baltimore, Maryland. And is signed the day after he graduates high school by the Detroit Tigers. Less than a week later, he makes his debut, becoming the 11,032nd player to join the MLB fraternity when he goes over one against the Philadelphia A's. 22-year Major League Baseball career, all of them spent in a Tigers uniform. A 92.8 war, which is the 42nd best in baseball history. A war that has some sandwich between, uh, let's see here, Jimmy Fox, the Beast, and Wade Boggs. 18-time All-Star, 1955 AL batting title at the age of 20, two years removed from high school, freaks. 10 Gold Glove Awards, 1974 September AL Player of the Month. 2,834 games, 10,116 plate appearances, 1,622 runs scored, 3,007 hits, 498 doubles, 75 triples, 399 home runs. Come on, man. You gotta sack it up. You couldn't get one more out of there. Alright, out loud. 1,582 RBIs, 137 stolen bases, 65 times caught. 1,277 walks to only 1,020 strikeouts. 4,852 total bases, the 28th most in the game's history. His number six was retired by the Tigers for posterity. They got a huge statue of him at the current, current home of the Tigers, Comerica Park. In 1980, he received 340 of 385 votes at an 83% clip to earn induction into the Hall of Fame in his first year of eligibility. What a play. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, seam heads of all ages, this is the story of Mr. Tiger, Al Kaline. What an amazing story and journey. A lot of things that I didn't know. And a lot of things still left to learn. There are plenty of things out there to learn more about this rock star if you are so inclined. I'm going to break out, folks. I hope you enjoyed the show. I'll have the last one of the year, the day after Christmas next week. I got to get you freaks back to your loved ones. Patiently waiting for you back at Terrapin. So... With the K-Line pod getting smaller and smaller in our rearview mirrors, I chop the head off that beast. I never say die baseball hydro, only to see two more topics appear in its place. Next week, we're going to end the year with a story about one of the greatest Southpaws to ever take the bump. 
We're talking about the incomparable Sandy Kovacs. But look, that's another story for another pod here at Backwards K-Pod where we collect ball players and their stories. Look forward to that. Please remember to rate and review me as you see fit. Share the show with all your little CMAP buddies. Merry Christmas to my tribe. And look, no matter what your background or religious persuasion may or may not be, Happy holidays. I wish you and yours nothing but peace and good tidings. And that's going out to the whole planet. Let's end this year strong with Kovacs next week. And moving to year three of this beast-ass fucking show. Thank y'all for coming out. God bless and win the day. And I agree with my boy Shay Hillenbrand when he told me in our one-on-one sparring session in the dojo last year. You go to hell, Andy Pettit. Me and my boy, Charlie Guns, we're throwing up our Gunder Hendersons, y'all. That's our deuces, freaks. As in, see you next week with the Sandy Kopak Show. As in, peace. Peace.